Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Did you hear that? I just did it. I'll do it again. There's a old uh, Jewish joke. It's the guy who takes his palm and puts it, you know, on his forehead. Oy vey. That is exactly one hand clapping. And that's our subject, koan. Oh, I thought it was Jewish jokes. <laughs> well, I'm a koan. People get it confused. You know, they go jundo koan. No, I'm a koan. I've never confused you with a koan because koans are things that you simply can't understand, at least not easily. And I tend to understand you pretty well. You do? Then I'm doing something wrong. Because Zen teachers should be mysterious, and we should speak in koans. Uh. I should say, Kirk, what is the tree in the garden? The bird is whispering, but leaves no traces. And I should answer, the squirrel comes at night. (laughs) Where are we going from here? (laughs) I don't know. I think we're doing an Abbott and Costello routine. Um, but koans, we've been talking about koans in recent weeks, um, yeah. because I read something about koans, and I asked you about koans, and you said to me, well, I'm not a koan guy, because Soto Zen doesn't really do koans, but... That's not true. It, well, hold on. Does it, it's not the most important part of Soto Zen, whereas for Rinzai Zen, koans are really important. Well, let's say we approach them differently. And I'd like to say, uh, being completely biased as I am, that um, the way we approach them is actually closer to the original way they were used when they first developed. Um, the, the history of koans is all wrapped up to why they're misunderstood today. Okay, let's start by explaining what a koan is. It's spelled K-O-A-N, and yes. if people know anything about Zen Buddhism, they've generally heard the word koan and something about the sound of a one hand clapping, something right. like that. The best translation for a koan is something like a public case, like a public court case, because it's a, a small precedent, uh, a small skit or story that somehow encompasses a teaching. Uh, it's usually between two Zen masters or a Zen master and a student, and they speak in what is seemingly very mysterious, hard-to-fathom ways filled with uh, poetic allusions and bits of humor that, you know, through the ages have somehow many of the, the references have become lost, and that makes them even more mysterious. But the reason they're like a case is they're uh, something that testifies to a bit of Buddhist wisdom, you see. I never understood that. The, the term public case isn't very... Um, explicit in English when we hear that. Well, one of the things that's misunderstood about them is that they developed because Zen masters were actually very 
intimately tied to the literary class in China. Now, people think that Zen is about going beyond words and literature. But the strange thing about Zen is that through much of his history, it was closely tied to the Confucian Mandarin class and their poetics, their love of word games. There were traditions for centuries before the development of koans that I can only describe it as very similar to what you would call today a, a slam, a poetry slam. You know, uh, two guys would get up there and kind of try to outdo each other by uh, one would, would say a poetic line, the other one would give a response. There was a lot of humor involved, a lot of allusions uh, to other poems, and the, the truly educated fellow would have to pick up the reference. And like a slam, they'd go back and forth, you know. And that tradition developed into the koan. And we've forgotten that. We think, uh, we don't know where this came from. Why are they speaking so mysteriously? But in fact, they were doing that for, for centuries before it had anything to do with Buddhism. When you see some koans, when you read them on paper, they're generally quite short, and they almost look as if um, some Zen master had taken notes to put on an index card to save because there was a good conversation. Well, when I first got into Zen, people took these as historical records, as if there were ha actually had been a microphone or a fly on the wall <laughs> who had written these down. But what we now know very clearly is that for most all of these stories, they're literary works that pretty much were written centuries after they supposedly occurred. Now, some of them may have actually been some actual dialogue that occurred. Someone did take notes. A student did take notes. But we've now uh, evidence of many things. Number one, for many of the most famous koans, we see how they changed and developed because we have earlier versions and amended versions and somebody uh, fooled around with it. But uh, a lot of them are supposedly set in the Tang dynasty when in fact they're Sung dynasty. You know, don't confuse your Tang with your Sung. Yes, good you point. Know? And I'll put some links in the show notes about the different dynasties and what periods they are. Yeah. Um, it's almost as if at a certain point people started collecting these koans and developing these collections, and it almost makes me think of these people who went around in the southern U.S. collecting old blues songs. Not only that, they composed them. Mm. A lot of these stories are... Composed or edited? Works of fiction. Oh, okay. Religiously inspired fiction in which they took famous characters and they put them in a setting and they put in dialogue. You know, we say, getting back to the tongue and the sung, not to confuse, do not confuse your tongue and your sung. The tongue was said to be the golden age of Zen. And the sung was a, an age when it had become what we say mannerism or had kind of become a little fuddy-duddy institution. But in fact, it was the institution that invented these legends of the tongue, you know. So the Tang kind of in, existed only in the imagination of these authors much later who created these stories. Now, not again, not all of them, but a lot, a lot most, okay, almost all of the stories we have are later creations. So they created them to basically justify their own ideas by saying, well, hey, these Tang guys had these ideas first, so right. we're carrying them over. 
That's exactly right. That's right. And that doesn't mean they're not brilliant ideas, but they are someone's later expression of his own insight. Now, I say they're ideas because you got to understand, there's a logic to koan. But one of the reasons, there's, there are several reasons they're weird. Here's one of the reasons. They're logical, but it's Zen logic. We've, we've spoken about this before. In normal logic, you are Kirk and I am Jundo, and neither of us is the mountain outside or the teacup I hold. But for a Zen person, the mountain is the teacup, and Kirk and Jundo are swept up together into that wholeness. And when I drink tea, it's uh, like uh, drinking the mountain. And when you drink tea, it's like I'm drinking you. Yeah, I don't want to think about that. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but right. So uh, when we have so the this whole interconnectedness of everything, emptiness that all things sweep into all things. So that's a, that's a big thing. That that life and death are just one way to look at things. That there's a, a vision beyond separation, beyond coming and going. Right, and a lot of the koans uh, allude to that and try to express that alternative lo logic that's Zen logic, not our usual way of, in Western logic, analyzing the world. That's why they're weird. If you understand that approach, they're actually saying something. They're actually trying to express something. Okay, so what are they trying to express? Are they all, in some way, trying to express the same basic truths? Well, hmm, no. But different facets of the most fundamental teachings of Buddhism, I would say. Things like emptiness, things like non-self, things like the transcendence of birth and death, things like the transcendence of time, things that, uh, for example, that emptiness is present right here in things. We think that em emptiness is something that, that sweeps away uh, all things. There's a famous uh, koan about uh, a monk who says, Master, I have an emptiness, and the other master grabs his nose and gives it a tweak, and the first monk goes, ouch, and he says, you see, I'm grabbed hold of emptiness, which means that emptiness is right here in our, you know, most intimate experience of, of being a self. We say there's no self, but yes, yes, there is. Here we are, too. You know, the koans uh, express these basic teachings, but the other reason they're weird is they're filled with slang. They were written in a very joking style, like you do find in modern rap. You know, for example, if I used a lot of slang right now, that uh, from you know the late twentieth century, early twenty first century, I'd go like uh, Thomas the Tank Engine and Bling Bling and uh, uh, Britney Spears. You know, and if somehow I made a story, and a thousand years from now, a guy in Lithuania tried to figure out. Uh, you know, with the difference of language, too. What was a Britney Spears? He might yeah. think that Britney Spears is some mysterious uh, Buddhist Dharani chant. You know, Britney Spears, Britney Spears, Britney Spears. <laughs> I, uh, he would have little idea. So a lot of the references in the koan are just old jokes and old poems that we've lost track of, that's all. And... You're a translator, and I've been a translator, and we're both very aware of that, but I think a lot of people don't. 
Um, so when you read some of these koans in, in these books, there's often very long notes explaining all these things. It's very difficult to read a very short text where the notes are 10 times as long as the text and to fully absorb what the notes are explaining. For example, Britney Spears, if in a thousand years someone had to explain Britney Spears, it would take a long note. And it makes the koan seem even more impenetrable. Well, yeah, the, the fact of the matter is we already said that the old Zen guys were more into the literary world than we want to give them credit for, but they were also well studied. You know, my, my, uh, what I like to say is they'd read the books and learn them, and then they'd burn them after. Yeah. You know, our way is to, to study, but not be bound by the book. So these people would actually, and even today in the Rinzai monasteries, they, they learn the poetry. It's actually kind of a literary course to deal with koans in a traditional Japanese uh, Rinzai monastery. In my understanding, I'm a bit of an outsider as a Soto fellow. But you have to be quite, uh, how to say, an educated literary uh, master to present yourself as a, a true Rinzai priest. If you're going to present yourself, you have to be good with calligraphy. You have to be able to write a nice poem. You have to know poetic references. But anyway, what's happened in the West is kind of an abomination from all. The reason it is kind of weird here in the West is because people go to the cons and they don't quite understand what they're about. So there were two basic reactions. One reaction was, oh, the, their koans are not about anything. They're just illogical. They're kind of a monkey wrench in the brain. That's their only purpose. They're not supposed to mean anything. It's uh, nonsense. And if you stick it in the brain, it creates some kind of uh, implosion for that reason because they don't mean anything. That's bad. The koans actually were intended to be teaching uh, stories. So that, that's an abomination. The other one is that the koans are, are weird, they're like poetry, so they can mean whatever you want them to. And what has happened in the West is there are some very, very gifted teachers. Now, again, I'm speaking a little out of my league because I'm a Soto guy, and a lot of these koans are used more by the Rinzai and mixed Rinzai Soto people. But what's kind of happened is that the teacher will kind of feel whatever I feel inspired in my heart they mean, that's what they mean. They kind of, I, I kind of channel the meaning. And that is very loose, loosey-goosey too. That seems and, awfully subjective that any teacher can apply any meaning they want to a koan instead of that koan representing a truth that continues through the centuries. Yeah, it's very stream of consciousness. And the few surveys I've seen on this shows that teachers are just tremendously inconsistent in saying what these koans mean. And you can just see, it. if you go in the magazines and read talks about teachers expressing what these koans mean, they're all over the place. Nobody seems to agree on what these basic stories mean. A lot of it is, frankly, a lack of education on what the koans actually meant. But if there is such disagreement, that means that there's no corpus of commentaries explaining the koan. No, there is. But they're all over the place, too. Oh, okay. So yeah. no one ever agreed on what a koan meant. Does a dog have Buddha nature? No one ever agreed the point of that koan, did they? You know, in modern, postmodern world here, we say that the, the author does not own the koan. 
the koan doesn't have a meaning except in the the ear of the beholder. And I think that's a little dangerous. I think actually most of the koans uh, originally did have pretty reasonably easy to understand uh, meaning for each koan that was... uh, You could even look at the koans and pretty much figure out what the point is. But we just lose that because... uh, People just feel that I'm going to make the koan be about anything I feel. Now, now sometimes it's the teachers who do this are extremely gifted. I don't want to give it wrong. Like a Dido Lori, man, he can take a koan, the late Dido Lori, and, and offer a talk, and he will just blow your socks off. But a lot of the other people I've heard uh, give uh, talks on koans, man, what are they pulling it out of their ear? I don't know where it comes from, <laughs> um, frankly. Um, and um, it's led to Zen, frankly, uh, being a kind of a mess. It's chaos. It's loosey-goosey. People don't know what Zen, Zen is about. Any weird thing you want to say, it's become a school of pop psychology. Don't get me started. Okay. Around 1980, my first exposure to Zen was I'd been interested in the music of John Cage, and he was influenced by Zen, and I went to a Barnes & Noble bookstore in Manhattan. And there were two books about Zen. There was um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunryu yeah. Suzuki, and Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, a collection of Zen stories and koans by Paul Rep. So those were the only yeah. two books I had. Now, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, I wouldn't say it's an easy book, but it's something that one can understand, whereas Zen Flesh, Zen Bones seemed to me back then, and even now if I look back at it, as if part of the intention of that book was to obfuscate and make Zen look complicated and strange. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, D.T. Suzuki also presented a lot of the koans. He gave his own interpretations, and he was a very educated man. Some of those, his books, even through the the decades, are are still quite good, and you can get a tremendous amount of information uh, from them about what the koans meant. But the fact is, we just know a lot more now than we did back then. Uh, and uh, scholarship has uh, really deciphered a lot of the hieroglyphics of what these koans were about. So there are still koans that no one has the slightest idea uh, really what what they're talking about, but uh, most of them, you know, you can kind of trace it back. Now, but a big change happened in the use of koans. Ask me what the big change was. What was the big change, and when did it happen? Well, I believe uh, about the uh, uh, 12th century, um, uh, a, a Chinese priest named Da Hui uh, was probably trying to develop a, a kind of a shortcut method for his lay students. And he encouraged them to focus not on an entire koan, just a phrase or a word from a koan, kind of like a, a, a mantra or just something to, to pour yourself into. And that word, that phrase would, again, I'm speaking as an outsider, so people are going to jump all over me because they, no one ever agrees that, uh, I, you know, that an outsider can ever express this right. Okay, so I, I realize that. I'm, I'm going to be offending somebody here. But you pour yourself in, you develop what is called a great doubt, uh, and suddenly things open up. All I can say is it's a point of focus. The koan itself is kind of lost in that process. Now, originally, what happened was 
you would only focus on one or two koans. And even in places like Korea, uh, sometimes they have one koan for their entire life. And in China, there have been all kinds of uh, koans that have developed, very creative koans. Uh, new koans are developed all the time. But again, it's not a set curriculum. In Japan, they, uh, a fellow named Hakuin and uh, some of his students developed curricula of koans, that you would go through hundreds of koans, each is supposedly emphasizing different points of reality. It's very formal. You know, some people get a lot out of it. So I think, uh, you know, if you get a lot out of it, then it's a beautiful practice for you. So what I've never understood about that, it's, so you've got a curriculum. It's like you're in school, you're taking a test, and you're talking to people who've already taken the test, so you can find out what the answer is. How no, would someone no. actually prove to the teacher that they understood it deep in their marrow no. rather than just repeating what someone else told them? If you just repeat something, or you just get... They're actually cheat books you can buy. But they're, they're, everyone who knows these cheat books will tell you that they're worthless. You have to, theoretically, present something original that shows real understanding. We spoke about this in the Dokusan room a couple of episodes back, that there has to be a certain twinkle in the eye that says, this is really in the bones. I really got this. You're not just mouthing words. You're not just right. you know, spitting in the wind or drawing a circle in the air. There's something that shows you really know this and are not just going through the motion. But, you know, I got to tell you something. In Japan, from what I understand from Victor Hori's wonderful book, Zen San, which is an academic study of Rinzai curricula, of koans, there is a lot of memorization because it's just learning the koans so that later you have mastery over the basic stories of the tradition and the which poems go as capping phrases with which koans. A lot of the poems are written in old style. The language is even hard for modern Japanese to understand. It's basically kind of half Chinese, half Japanese, a lot of... And so the, in the Rinzai style, from what I understand, there is a lot of memorization that goes on. What's happened in the West, I understand, uh, again, speaking as uh, half an outsider, is that they've tried to actually bring the koans back to life and bring back the spontaneity and bring back the creativity. But as I said, you can go too far with that, and you can get so creative with, with it that it just doesn't mean anything. It's just someone winging it. So there's a fine line here. In a gifted master's hand, the koans truly, truly have profound meaning that changes the student, and the student is expressing true understanding. But is there real quality control here? I don't think so. <laughs> Okay, there are three major collections of koans, the Blue Cliff Record, the Book of Equanimity, and the Gateless Barrier. And there's also a collection of koans that Dogen made. It's published under the title, uh, The True Dharma Eye, Zen Master Dogen's 300 Koans. Yeah. How do these all fit together? You're saying Soto Zen doesn't really use koans, but Dogen did. Um, when did it stop? When did it change? First off, there are many, many koan collections be besides those. Those are just right. These are the major the ones. Popular. Yeah, yeah. What Dogen did is uh, he taught with koans, and and you know, in Soto, we love koans. 
I say we dance with koans, we chew on koans, we teach with koan, we let koans touch us. It's it's like listening, you know how I can compare it? The close I can compare it is listening to music, poem, uh, that moves you. When I listen to Beethoven, it touches me. A koan is something we work with, we dance with, that changes and touches us. It's not something, though, in Zazen, we focus on a phrase of a koan. That was what I said that fellow Dawei did. He said, focus on a word or a phrase, like moo, moo, moo. That's As a support koan. for meditation. Right. Okay. We, but Dogen took his list of koans in like his uh, works like Shobo Genzo, and he ex- expressed them, he danced with them, he twisted them all up and, and found uh, incredibly creative and powerful ideas, and, and, uh, and uh, more than ideas, I sometimes say, he found uh, the wild sound in the koan. I compare him sometimes to a jazz musician who took these koans and just, and just blew them like through his saxophone, made a wild sound. You got to read my new book to, to get what I'm really saying about that. But, <laughs> Which is uh, coming out next year. Yes, it is. Okay. We'll talk about your new book when it's ready to come out. Sure. Um, so what do you recommend for anyone who's curious about koan? Okay. Uh, and you've told me that you don't teach koans. It's not something that you do. But I still feel personally that this is a part of Zen that Zen practitioners should know a little bit about. Yeah. Uh, I would, uh, speaking again from the Soto tradition, I would just say if you're, if you're interested in working with koans, you have to go to a Rinzai or mixed Soto Rinzai teacher, someone with an excellent reputation and work with them. And I don't want to discount that in any way. It's a wonderful practice. And people, people have said that they, they get so much out of it. I don't want to make like I'm putting that down in any way. Okay. But I also recommend, there's so much literature now. Study the history of these koans. One of the most famous koans, does a dog have Buddha nature? The answer was yes. The guy in the koan says no, but he actually means something that transcends the whole question of yes or no to really feel and know what is Buddha nature. You have to leap beyond the question. So the answer is kind of no, which means not no or yes. It means something beyond. Because the koan, if you look at the history of the koan, there are actually two versions. One, the guy says yes, and the other, the guy says no. The dog does not have Buddha nature, and you're supposed to leap beyond that to find out really what is this dog. And it goes, arf! And it bites you right <laughs> in the butt. Okay? So, but Steve Hine, great uh, Buddhist uh, historian, wrote a book about the history. It's called, uh, I believe, Fighting Cats and Dogs, something like that. It's about the whole history of this koan. That's all it's about, how people argued about the meaning, how the meaning changed over time. Read books like that and really see how these koans developed, and you'll learn a lot. Also, James Ford has a great uh, book on the Mu koan, too. Do your homework. Okay, you've assigned a lot of homework for anyone who's interested in learning more about koans, and let us just end this episode of the podcast with our koan. Where do we go from here, Roshi? Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Moo? (laughs) If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating, tell your friends, 
You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.